We are here on a holy day, and we are directing our thoughts to the events just before Christ's return. There's a tremendous amount of understanding that God has given to his people through his spirit and by keeping these days. We heard about it this morning. We heard Mr. Smith uh, going through Leviticus chapter 23, overviewing the whole plan, which the holy days show. We see prophetically what God is doing in bringing many sons to glory as we heard about what a privilege it is that that we have been invited here today to hear the words of God, to look at the words of God, and to get a glimpse of what he has available for all mankind. We understand his plan involves the forgiveness of all mankind, repentance of sin for those who are willing to, those who are willing to submit their lives to him, entrance into God's family so that we can all be together in his family ultimately through this plan. And so that we might say someday there will be a universal church. A universal church. Literally. If God's family members spread to the galaxy someday and replenish and reform and reshape and perhaps repopulate the universe. But universal church has a certain different connotation today, doesn't it? Another word that's often used is Catholic. You know, the term Catholic doesn't by itself uh, mean anything bad. It just means all-encompassing, universal, describing the whole. After certain centuries of referring to a uh, church out of Rome, it has a different connotation. But someday God's family will be the universal church encompassing the whole universe. We don't see it yet today. We see a sea of religious confusion, and actually the Feast of Trumpets has a lot to say about that. Where is it going? How is it going to be resolved, and, and where is it going to end the religious confusion we see today? We are going to be in a period of transition. And as we've heard already, we've heard it described as the climax of history, a pivot point in history. And the Feast of Trumpets is foretelling a period of transition. For the sermon this afternoon, we're going to talk about trumpets and a tale of two churches. Trumpets and the tale of two churches. You know, when we look around us at the world, we really don't see hundreds of denominations or even thousands. From Bible perspective, from God's perspective, there really are only two churches, aren't there? The true and the false. 
That's what the book of Revelation says, the true and the false. Now, again, lest I be misunderstood, when we speak of the true church, I'm not saying our fellowship alone. I'm speaking of the church of God at large. We certainly do have some brothers and sisters in other fellowships that are not currently in the living church of God. The Bible speaks of those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ as the true Christians. So there is a true church of God. But that is contrasted with the false church. There are only two churches, really. It's a fundamental premise that we're going to build on today in the, in the sermon as we talk about the Feast of Trumpets and what it tells us about this tale of two churches. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Mr. Smith was touching on this this morning. We're going to pick, pick it up where he left off. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. When Jesus went out and departed from the temple, his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down a massive temple, an awesome temple. And he told them, This is going to be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples asked him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How will we know these things are coming? Is it wrong to ask? Is it wrong to try to understand prophecy? And the obvious answer is, of course not. Because then Jesus gave his disciples some clues. He said, verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. When speaking of these days, Jesus said, be careful. He gave a warning. Don't let anyone deceive you. Now, what was he warning of? Was he predicting a rise in Buddhism? Perhaps, you know. Don't be deceived because the concept of nirvana, when you when you die and you just float off into becoming at one with the universe, that will be very seductive. You know, that will be very exciting and people will want to believe that. Is that really what he was warning about? Or Hinduism, you know, you might be, you might be drawn into worshiping cows. Or atheism or agnosticism. Now certainly, you know, there are elements of all sorts of strange religions in our, in our society, in our, our group think today, in our culture. But that's not what he was warning about, these other religions. He said something specific, verse 5. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive Many. What we see is he was warning about a false Christianity. He was warning about people who would come in his name, who would use his name, appropriate his name, and yet not say what he said. Not do what 
he said. He explained there would be a true Christianity and a false Christianity. And as the days would draw to an end, it's more important than ever, he said, it would be to recognize the two. In some ways, Satan's greatest deception ever conceived has been to falsify Christianity. To put paganism under a veneer of respectability. A veneer of Christianity. Something that looks good, but is pagan. Young people, if you're growing up in the church, in this church... In the true church of God, you have a tremendous opportunity to learn the truth first and not to have to unlearn the false. Don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Treasure it. Grab hold of it. And we understand that that takes time to even appreciate what you have. But as much as you possibly can, grab hold of it. As as we go through today, talking about the Holy Day, we're going to see how important it is to grab hold of it. Because you'll be tested. We'll all be tested. As to whether we really want it or not. Or whether we will take the substitute. Now, does Satan's church have people dressed up like, uh, you know, with a pitchfork and a tail and a... A red suit? Of course not. Are people who are not in God's church always mean and and nasty and hard to get along with? Of course not. Frankly, a lot of them are really nice people. But you know, nice people can believe in heresy. And it's still heresy. I think that's what confused a lot of our young people in the apostasy years ago. They assumed everyone out there was bad and mean and horrible and nasty. And when someone came along and said, you know what, some of those people who believe in, well, they're kind of mixed up on a few, but they're actually nice people. And it blew them away. So heresy is heresy. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you don't put a drop of strychnine or arsenic in a glass of water without it affecting the whole glass. You don't have to have a gallon of it, just a drop. If you haven't reviewed Dr. Meredith's booklet, Satan's Counterfeit Christianity in a While, read it again. If you haven't read it at all, read it for the first time. The Holy Day season is a good time to reflect on this. About the true church and the false church. And which one are we a part of? And how important is it to us, brethren? Because the days ahead are going to test it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. Notice uh, just quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 And verse 13, Paul said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of light. 
And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. There were heresies abounding all the way back at the beginning. Even just a few decades after the church of God was founded. And Paul was dealing with it. We're just in the last chapter of the book today. We're just nearing the final chapter. But it's been going on a long time. You know, in some ways it's hard to see right now that a rise in false Christianity is going to be a big deal in the future. Because many people who call themselves Christians today are feeling like they're on their heels. Are feeling like they're being pushed back. Many nominal Christians today are being persecuted around the world. There's one estimate that more than 100,000 Christians are murdered every year just because of their faith. 100,000. And there's another estimate that as many as 200 million Christians in over 60 countries around the world face some degree of restriction, discrimination, or outright persecution. 200 million. It seems like Christianity in in so-called is on retreat in this country, is it not? You think about it, the recent change, the recent decision by the Supreme Court, the recent lady who was put in jail for defined the Supreme Court, she's out of step, isn't she? But brethren, don't be fooled. This will not continue. There will be a pushback. There will be a backlash. There will be a comeback by organized Christianity. Your Bible predicts it. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. He already said in Matthew chapter 24 that many would come in his name. Many would come appropriating his name and yet be a false religion. Now we see, as Mr. Smith brought out, that in the end, not only would that false church be teaching, preaching, baptizing, performing sacraments, etc., but would dare, would, would put to death those who dare to oppose it. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, And when I saw then the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Who is this white horse? Mr. Smith explained. It is not Jesus Christ. It's a very, very different figure that's explained over there uh, in uh, Revelation Chapter 19, I believe it is. That is one who comes with many crowns, with a sword, the sword of the Spirit. And in righteousness he makes war. This figure has a crown, has a bow, is conquering, 
but there's no reference about its righteousness. Many people believe that this is referring to Christ. Here are a couple of commentaries. One is uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, referring to Revelation 6 and verse 2, by the going forth of this white horse, a time of peace, or the early progress of the Christian religion seems to be attended or intended. Not true. Doesn't add up, doesn't match up. Another one. Uh, saying, evidently Christ, whether in person or by his angel, preparatory to his coming again. It, it does not match up to the one who is going to come back as king of kings and lord of lords. Christ does not have one crown. And yet there is a system that though a false Christianity system reigns as kings, Reigns as kings. Have any of you seen, I believe it was when the, when the Pope was installed, that the cardinals had to prostrate themselves on the ground as they came before him. Prostrated fully on the ground before a man. Even the angels did not permit men to bow before them. And yet this system reigns as a king. It describes what we see in the world today. A powerful political religious system. Another commentator says this, it is the symbol of Christian victory. It was thus their hope saw Christ. Though ascended, he went forth in spiritual power conquering. It is the last 2,000 years, has this been the spiritual power of Christ conquering? Or has it been a false Christ? Well, we know the answer. And by keeping the Feast of Trumpets, we are given a very, very different answer, aren't we? Going through the seals, as Mr. Smith mentioned, we won't go through all of them, but he explained over in chapter 6 and verse 9. Let's read it. When he opened the fifth seal... Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So it's speaking, as we heard, of the great tribulation. It's speaking of the time of Jacob's trouble. It's speaking of the martyrdom of the saints who aren't protected in the place of safety. Now the question is, who are the martyrs and who causes them to be slain? The book of Revelation uses a lot of symbols. And in the book, a woman symbolizes a church. And there are two basic women that are highlighted in the book of Revelation, aren't there? Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 12. And we see one of them, Revelation chapter 12, breaking into the chapter toward the end. 
He says in verse 13 that when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, the timing is at the end, just before Christ's return, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. This woman who is the faithful woman, the woman who is the virtuous woman, the one who is the pure woman, the one who is, who is waiting and preparing to marry her husband when he returns. The dragon persecuted that woman. But to the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Three and a half years. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. And again, this is not a literal woman. This is the church. But the true church, the faithful church. The virtuous woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The true church. Some are protected, some are not. There's a warning for us as well. What we do today makes a difference. But this is the the true church. This is the pure and chaste woman. Not chaste as in, you know, chaste down the road. The other type of chaste. Where do we find a woman depicting a false church? Notice Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, and again, we're not going to go through all of the steps and details that Mr. Smith went through this morning. We're just jumping into the context, into the, the thought here. Came and talked to me saying, to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, different woman. Totally different nature of a woman, isn't it? A woman who is not faithful, a woman who is not virtuous, a woman who is adulterous, a woman who is a harlot, who sits on many waters. We've heard that explained many times. That's talking about people. That's another symbol symbolism in the book of Revelation. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. A very powerful, a very influential, a very political organization that causes spiritual drunkenness. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, a blasphemous organization, a blasphemous system, which is an affront to God, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman, the church, it's a church, it's a false church, it's an adulterous church, Unfaithful church. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, as we have many times been explained to us. It's the 
the, the, the color of harlotry and the color of royalty at the same time. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So who is the one that puts the true saints to death that we saw there in Revelation chapter 6? It's the false church that causes them to be put to death. We see this contrast between the virtuous woman and the fallen woman, the true church and the false church. It's what the story of the book of Revelation tells us. And it's what the story of the Feast of Trumpets tells us as well. There's another thing that we can glean from this passage that we just read. The false church is not only a woman, but a mother. And now what is a mother? Well, by definition, a mother has children, right? A mother has daughters because it says the mother of harlots. So she has daughters which have the same nature as the mother. What is this talking about? Well, systems that have been spun out of the mother system. It's talking about daughter churches. It's talking about Protestants. It's talking about the Orthodox churches that came out of the mother. Now, why is this important? There is something happening in the Catholic and Protestant world today. The ground is shifting. I'm sure you've seen it. You've been watching the news. You are aware of what's going on. Things are very different than they were even a few decades ago. There was an evangelical minister, I think he's an Episcopalian uh, minister, Tony Palmer, who gave an address to a group of Kenneth Copeland Ministries leaders back about a year ago. If you'd like to, uh, to it's a fascinating about a 20-minute video. Uh, you can do a YouTube search. Uh, Tony Palmer and Pope Francis, The Miracle of Unity Has Begun. Recommend that you watch it. Fascinating. If you, if you want to get a, a snapshot of what's happening, how the ground is shifting today, religiously, in false Christianity. He refers in the video to a movement in the Roman Catholic Church to bring back the daughters into the fold. <clears throat> a few quotes that I wrote down from his video. You can look at it yourself. He said this, It's the glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. It's glory that glues us together, not the doctrines. That's not what Christ said. Christ said it's the truth that sets you free. You shall know the truth. And it will set you free. Mr. Palmer also said, God will sort out all of our doctrines when we get upstairs. Is that true? Or does it matter what we believe when we're downstairs, right here, you know, so to speak? 
He says this, in 1999, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Lutheran Church signed an agreement that brought an end to the protest. He said, Luther believed we are saved by grace through faith alone. Never mind that word is not in the scripture. Dr. Winnell, Dr. Meredith explains that to us time and time again. The word sola, Martin Luther included it. It's not found there. And yet that's a central plank in, in their belief system. In the Protestants, he said, Luther believed we are saved by grace through faith alone. The Catholic Church believed that we were saved by works, and that was the protest. This is him talking. Then he says, in 1999, they wrote this together. This joint declaration, you can look it up on the web, you can read the whole thing. This is the joint declaration between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Justification means that Christ himself is our righteousness, is our righteousness in which we share with the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together we believe and confess that by grace alone, in faith, in Christ's saving works, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. And immediately when he finished, there was applause throughout the whole Room. Why? Because they figured out a way to combine the positions of the Catholics and the Protestants. They figured out a way to word it so that everybody was happy. And then he says, this brought an end to the protest of Luther. He says, brothers and sisters, Luther's protest is over, is yours. He says, the protest has been over for 15 years. In 1999, the Worldwide Lutheran Church signed this. Five years later, the Methodist Conference did. He said, if there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? Dr. Meredith wrote an article. You may have noticed it. Or he talked about that. He talked about there, there is going to not be a Protestant church very much longer. Why? Because they're being called back into the mother. His final words in that part were, maybe we're all Catholics again. We are living in historic times. Tony Palmer said it. We understand it. You know, about 20 years ago, I was visiting one of my aunts, uh, in a great aunt in my hometown when I was in college. A friend of hers had died, and, and uh, there was a funeral. Uh, this person was, was Catholic. My aunt was Lutheran. And uh, so while I was there, we, we went to the, the funeral sat in the back, was conducted by a Catholic priest. At the end of the service, very interesting, the Catholic priest said, now we will have the Mass, and we invite all of our Lutheran friends to come up and join with us in the Mass. And he said, you know, a few years ago, we couldn't have done that, but now we can. Isn't that wonderful? 
I did not take the mask, by the way. I stayed in my seat. But it sent chills up my spine. Brethren, this is what we have known was going to happen. This is what the true church of God has been helping us to understand for decades. That the daughters are going to come back into the mother. Now, how do you recognize the harlot daughters? What separates the Catholic church from Protestant churches? Do a web search sometime. What are the differences between Catholic and Protestant churches? And see what you find. Very interesting. You'll find that word, little word sola in there, you know, about uh, justified by grace through faith alone. That was the Protestant position. Um, the Catholics uh, believe justified by, by works. You'll find some other things about uh, either following the authority of Scripture or following the authority of tradition, variations of it. You'll find uh, you know, differences about veneration of, of images or Mary, uh, about looking to the Pope as opposed to the priesthood of the laity. But what is glaringly lacking? You don't find any difference on the Trinity. They all believe in the Trinity. You don't find any difference on belief in the immortal soul. Catholics, Protestants, you name it, they believe in the immortal soul. You don't find any difference on what happens to bad people when you die. They all go to hell. Catholics, Protestants, doesn't matter. All believe, no, no difference when you do a search. What happens when you die and you're good? Well, you either go to heaven or you go almost to heaven. You know, purgatory and you're on your way. But essentially no difference. What about Sunday keeping? No difference. That's why the daughter churches are coming back to mother. Because there really is no substantive difference. And that's what the book of Revelation shows us. Why is this important? Brethren, because the barriers of separation are coming down. Luther protested in 1517, and the mother church is doing all she can to bring back into the fold the daughters that have been estranged, but have the nature of the mother. Almost 500 years later. Maybe that's why explains why this current pope is doing all he can to loosen the boundaries, to, to soften the edges, you know, to not make some people feel so uncomfortable uh, who are sort of on the outside, make them feel more included. He's making a lot of conservative Catholics upset by things he's doing. Here are a few of the... Uh, uh, here, here is from an article that came out recently, Washington Post, uh, September 7th. A culture war is brewing over Pope Francis' revolutionary tenure with conservatives and traditionalists pushing back against what they see as a liberal momentum surging within the Roman Catholic Church. Despite the uproar, the first Latin American pope has not yet ushered in any substantial changes in policy, but he has given space to liberal bishops who are pressing for new policies. What are some of the things that he has focused on? Some of the more controversial statements he's made. Well, that even atheists can go to heaven. 
Uh, he, he, the, the famous statement, who am I to judge? Homosexuals, right? Um, having an audience with a transgender person, someone who was a guy, used to be a, you know, used to be a guy, was a girl now. I'm not sure which way it went. But he had an audience with this person in, in a very public way, in a very premeditated way, to make a point. Forgiveness for women who have abortions. Now, of course, all sin can be forgiven, but you know this is his for God to forgive, but this is the Pope forgiving these. And issuing a new streamlined annulment process. He's doing everything he possibly can to make it easier to become Catholic. He's telling Anglican priests that they can become Catholic. There's a mechanism for them to become Catholic. And yet it's called an ordinariate, I believe. And yet they still continue to function with all of their Anglican traditions and liturgies. And yet they're Catholic. You know, the the mother church is very good at adapting. Very good at being inclusive and, and allowing for different expression of personal taste. Um... We lived in the Philippines for a while, and and you don't... It was very, very interesting living in a Catholic country after growing up in a predominantly Protestant country. Because you, you don't really see just how influential the Catholic Church is until you live in that kind of country. In the Philippines, the Catholic Church is very strong... And yet, animist witch doctors are very popular as well. Go figure that. The point is, they're very accommodating to a lot of variation as long as you come under their authority. And the daughters are returning. So, how is this happening? How is this going to uh, happen well. It may be that the uh, mother church becomes more liberal and allows the daughters to to float back in. It may be that there is a backlash to what's happening today, and another pope comes in who is even more conservative, and perhaps that where, where he becomes the champion of Christians, so-called nominal Christians today, who are not happy with the way things are going. Mr. Meredith mentions that in, in the, um, the magazine. He says, The Roman Catholic Church appears to stand for a few things. And millions of confused people out there searching for something, anything of real substance, are slowly but surely beginning to look at the original mother church of Protestantism as a place of religious safety. Many observers realize that the perceived stability of Roman Catholicism is making it more and more attractive to former Protestants who have grown tired of their own denominations waffling on so many issues. Students of Bible prophecy will not be surprised to see hundreds of thousands and even millions returning to their mother church in the next few years. So however it goes, some way, one way or the other, the mother is calling back the daughters. 
Let's go back to Revelation. Because we see in Revelation chapter 13, Mr. Smith uh, touched on this a little bit this morning. The first uh, ten verses of the chapter describe the beast power coming out of the sea. And then it says in verse 11, another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Again, a counterfeit. One that looks good, that, that looks like it has the veneer of a servant of Christ, and yet speaks with a very different voice. Verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Brethren, there will come a time when there will be lying wonders, when there will be miracles done, and they're not sleight of hand. They're not done by mirrors. They are real, but they're done by a false prophet. Jesus said, be aware, be warned. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19 says to the law and the testimony, if they do not follow this, there is no light in them. And yet there's going to be a powerful miracle working false prophet in the days to come. Deuteronomy 13.1, I'll just read it. It says, if a prophet arises and the wonder comes to pass, of which he said, let us go after other gods, you shall not listen to him, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart. This prophet will be able to do amazing things. But they will be lying wonders. Going on, he says in verse 14, He deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who is wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again, he goes from teaching and preaching to putting those to death who dare oppose. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead so that no one may buy or sell who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Think about this for a moment. This has not happened yet. A lot of people in other mainstream churches have not yet gone back to the mother. But this foretells that it will happen. Not necessarily that every person on earth will be a member of that church. But all will acknowledge, have to acknowledge its authority, its preeminence, and have to ally themselves with it or face the consequences. That's what the book says. 
In other words, this world is heading for a time when everyone will have to declare where they stand. And there are only two places to stand. You know, our, our culture today, <clears throat> our Protestant culture in this country, likes to have a sort of a cafeteria style, you know, buffet style. Sort of like the, the Church of Golden Corral, you know, where you... you <clears throat> place in this part of the country where you, 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 you all you can eat and, and incredible variety and you can pick and choose and you can take a little of that and a lot of that and, and not take the other thing. People have been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Frankly, Martin Luther did that as Dr. Meredith brings out. He says, rather than using, you really need to read this article, by the way, if you haven't already, rather than using the inspired word of God as the fundamental paradigm or model of what he wanted to restore, Martin Luther acknowledged as the primary founder of Protestantism seemed to be rebelling against certain Roman Catholic practices. Yet, in fact, he intended to carry on many of the basic teachings of Catholicism except those with which he personally disagreed. So Protestantism became a hodgepodge of different ideas. And is that not what we see today? It's actually exactly the same that Martin Luther himself did. He goes on explaining that Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He did not like reading Moses. He preferred not to read the book of Revelation. He said, I got nothing out of it. So why wouldn't we see our neighbors, our friends believe the same way? Take what you want, leave what you with, just pay your bill when you leave. Golden Corral. But there's going to be a day when they will be pushed into making a choice. Everybody will have to take a stand. It's going to be an easy transition for most because, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people just don't care about doctrine. They care about unity. They care about the glory. They care about loving each other, but they don't care about doctrine. So it won't be that big of a deal. But that's what we're trying to warn them for, to say it is a big deal. To not just go back to your roots of Luther, but go back to what the book says. Revelation 13 talks about taking the mark of the beast. We understand that that's going to be the mark of disobedience to God's laws in general and perhaps Sunday worship in particular. You know, something that has to do with your faith, your profession as well as your hand, what you do. And those who are not willing to take the mark of the beast, who are not willing to submit to that rule, will have a difficult time buying or selling. be very difficult. And yet God says in Exodus 31, there is a mark of his people as well. A sign of his people. We see two churches. The true church and the false church. That's what the, the, the Feast of Trumpets is reminding us that these two are going to clash. 
No more hundreds or even thousands of denominations, but two. Sorry, two. One very big one and one very small one, but a very powerful one because God is behind it. But everyone will have to decide. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 9. Again, one of the themes of the Feast of Trumpets and the message is don't just go along. Don't just go along to get along because that will end in disaster. We need to get on God's side. We need to be strong. There will be lots of opposition. But God will be with his people. Notice in... Matthew 24 and verse 9. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Brethren, the pressure will be enormous. Let's not kid ourselves. We are entering some very difficult times to the point where Jesus said the deception will be so bad that if it's possible, even the elect could be deceived. After all, why would anyone stand in the way when when everybody else is going in one direction? Why would anyone oppose that when the Lutheran World Federation and the Methodists and starting now some evangelicals are doing all they can to link arms with the mother church, why would anyone, especially a puny little group of nobodies, I think I heard it described that way in the sermonette, right? Something like that. That we're nobodies. Why would we oppose that? The pressure will be enormous. Now again, why is this important? We're living in a world that's sliding into chaos. Contempt for the Bible is growing. Disdain for anything relating to God is growing. The bulk of modern Israelites are sliding into hedonism and more and more secularism. There are some conservatives who are upset, who don't like the way it's going, who who are protesting, are are trying to to fight that trend. We admire them for standing up for whatever part of the truth they understand. And we can even sometimes feel a certain kinship for them. That they're trying to to obey whatever they understand a part of God's word. But brethren, you know, let's be frank. As they come to understand what our message is and what Dr. Meredith is saying in this article, we're not just calling the Catholics out, are we? We're calling everybody out. We're saying everybody needs to change. We're saying everybody needs to make sure their lives are guided by this book. Have you ever played uh, musical chairs? Remember as a kid? You know how to play musical chairs. How the, there are a group of chairs and... The music starts and everybody stands up and walks around and you pull one chair out. So there's one more person 
Then there are chairs. And the music stops and everybody's got to grab a chair. Brethren, there's going to be some day when we are the ones left standing. The true church is going to be the ones left standing without a chair and exposed and have to stand up for the truth and be bold. Because our message is not not just to the mother church. It's to everybody. We're going to get persecution from all sides. That's what he said. They will deliver you up to tribulation, kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The true disciples, the true church are going to have the spotlight put on them because they stand up for the truth and the whole world is going a different way. Again, one of our elders in the Philippines some years ago lived in a border area between the Muslims and Christian-controlled areas. He experienced something like this in real life, a time when there was fighting between the two. And the Muslims would arm, and they would encroach the area. They would threaten people. And, of course, he's not Muslim. And then the Christian would arm, Christians would arm with militias. They would form themselves to fight against the Muslims. And he wasn't a part of them either. He was caught in the middle. Sort of a man without a country. And yet God protected him. God took care of him. But it was it was difficult. It was difficult. The spotlight is going to be on those who stand up for the truth. And God says when it comes to our time, it will be for a testimony. And it will be an opportunity for us to show forth who God is in whatever way we have the opportunity and responsibility to do that. It won't be easy, but we won't be alone. The God of the real universal church is behind us. If we are in the true church. He governs the universe. He's in complete control of all. Matthew 24, verse 13, he says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This system will not prevail Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 17, and we see its end. Revelation chapter 17, God wins in the end. And if we're on God's side, we win too. If we are allied with Him, we win. We'll be with Him. We'll be guided. We'll be helped. And there's a warning to not allow ourselves to fall into this other system. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6, again, it said that John marveled with great amazement at the power of this organization. And again, you know, when we lived in the Philippines, it's hard to comprehend how far-reaching this organization is until you live in a country where its influence is all-pervasive. There was a military coup that took place in the Philippines. 
while we were there. And you know where the first place the generals went after they did this coup? They went to see the highest-ranking cardinal in the country. His name was Cardinal Sin, by the way. <clears throat> and it was on TV. And they had an audience with him. And they, they could not do a thing until they had the blessing of the cardinal. And they knew it. So they went to him first. And it was televised on the news, very public. This system has, has power. And John was, was seeing this incredible power. But then the angel said, why do you marvel? I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her. I'm going to tell you the end. I'm going to explain to you, John, this is a group of men. This is made up of mortals. This is not something you need to be afraid of. These are people just like you. Don't be intimidated. He talks about how it's going to be a part of this beast. But then notice in verse 15, he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. You know, there is no loyalty among crooks, is there? In the end, one will turn on the other. Mr. Smith's uh, telecast this week about the man of sin talks about this. If you haven't seen it, take, uh, be sure to, to, to hear the telecast. It talks about how the beast is going to turn on that city. And whether the false prophet betrays his own organization or whether he's captured by the beast... And then it's taken down to uh, Jerusalem. We, we, we see his end with the beast. However it happens, the, 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 the city will be burned with fire. That organization will come crashing down. For God has put it into the hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. All the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. We're reading it now ahead of time. How do we come out of it? Well, by living by God's word every day and by anchoring our lives on the truth. And holding to the truth every day now. So we don't become deceived. He said he's going to render her just as she rendered to you. And repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. 
Verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death, mourning, and famine. She'll be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. As we heard in the sermon this morning, God will finally say, enough. Enough. It's over. I'm stepping in. And thank God for that. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they seek to see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Kind of interesting. <clears throat> they're not really sorry for her. They're sorry for themselves, right? Their market's gone. Think about this for a moment. You know, uh, the destruction of one city would not, in another time, have an, a worldwide economic result, impact, the same way it does today. But this shows how powerful this economic system will be at that time. That when that city falls, I mean, we have seen some financial crashes. There's going to be a financial crash. And the merchants, are, they're going to mourn all right. It talks about all of the different kind of uh, things that are bought and sold through this system. And it shows it's a, it's a worldwide system. We won't read all of it. Finally, he says in verse, um, verse 19, They threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing and saying, saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. This system will end. And this system will end forever. Think about it. That church will be no more forever. It will be gone and never again come back. Notice he says in verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their, of chapter 19, sorry. Uh, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. An ignominious end for a system where the leaders were worshipped like gods. You know, when was the last time you went to the landfill, the dump, to take something? That's essentially what is happening to these two men. The lake of fire outside Jerusalem is the Gehenna fire, the, the trash heap fire. Their bodies are thrown into the trash. That's the end of this glorious system. That's why God says, don't be a part of it. It's going to end, and it will end forever. And yet there's another church that will last forever. Back in chapter 19 and verse 6. 
Let's start in verse 1. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. Again, the contrast, only two churches, the true and the false, and the two will come into conflict. That's one of the messages of the Feast of Trumpets. But God will judge the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he's avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were, (coughs) excuse me, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The marriage of the lamb has come. The end of the story. The end of one church. And the beginning of of a fantastic future for the other. The true saints of God being in God's family, being resurrected as we heard in or changed as we heard in the sermonette, and being a part of God's kingdom forever. We read in the book of Daniel how the saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever. And that little horn that brought down the horns of the beast will be destroyed. Will be gone forever. Brethren, we have such an amazing opportunity in front of us. And we truly are living in historic times. To be the bride of Christ. To be a part of that woman. The pure and chaste woman. Is such a precious opportunity. It's hard even to fathom it. Are we making ourselves ready? Are we getting ready? Are we looking and keeping our eyes and our focus on that day, on our goal, on being virtuous, on being clean, on being pure for our husband to that day? Because that's the goal that we would present ourselves a bride that is without spot at that time. It's awesome. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. Paul said, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. You know, one of God's names is also jealous. In Exodus 34, verse 10, we won't go there for lack of time. But one of his names is jealous. The jealous God. Is it because he's sort of needy and 
you know, sort of just needs our praise so much he can't live without it? No, that doesn't seem to be the way God operates. It's because he's our husband. We are the wife. It's a marriage covenant. And he says, if you want a relationship with me, it's going to have to be exclusive. Not running around with everyone else. You're going to have to look to me as any good wife. Virtuous wife. And I will take care of you and you'll be faithful to me. Paul said that I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I am betrothed to one, I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so we all have to be on our toes and to be warned and to be understanding that there are traps and Satan will do everything he can to try to pull us away from being in a state of being the virtuous woman that Christ wants to marry. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you might well put up with it. Of course, we don't want that to describe any of us. Young people, start now learning to not be afraid to be different. Don't be afraid to be different in the little things. Do the right thing. Ask God for help. Go against the crowd if need be, if the crowd is going the wrong way. Remember, if 50 million people do a stupid thing, it's still a stupid thing. And yet more than 50 million people are going to go along with this system. So there's going to be tremendous peer pressure to go along to get along. Young people learn to flex that muscle of being different with God's help. It's not just your own power. We all have to do it. Let's turn in conclusion to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. It's an interesting <clears throat> summation that we will read here. He says, verse 1, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. Verse 2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. With your glory and your majesty and in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and humility and righteousness. God is going to intervene, as we heard. And he's going to establish the right kingdom on this earth. Your hand, your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. It's really not, not much of a fight. Not any of a fight. God reigns supreme. And man who thinks he can fight against God will fall quickly. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He's talking about Christ being prepared for the role that he's going to take. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, the ivory palaces by which they've made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. We are preparing to be the bride of Christ. We are preparing to marry Jesus Christ. We are the true church. We are the church of God. We are God's church. We belong to him and we belong to Christ. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She'll be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all your, the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. The true church is going to last forever. Forever. And ever. Brethren, the Feast of Trumpets reveals the future of two churches. One will end abruptly in shame and contempt and ignominy and destruction, and forgotten. The other will go on and on and grow and expand and be remembered and honored forever. We are preparing right now because of the choices we make every day. Because we're letting him rule in our lives as a loving husband with loving authority over us and we his faithful wife. Thank God for our calling Thank God for the vision of the Feast of Trumpets that we can review each year and we can review today. And thank God for the destiny he's given to his church, to his true church, his one church, his soon-to-be eternal, everlasting, spirit-born, and yes, universal church. It will last forever. Let's make sure that we are a part of that church forever as well.